This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of this Kingpin's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. It had been a long time since Frank Matthews had felt this way. The feeling in his gut was foreign to him something he hadn't experienced in earnest since before his meteoric rise from Durham to the top of New York City's drug game. Frank was nervous. More than that, he was terrified. But it wasn't the threat of violence from his many bitter rivals that had him sweating. It was a football game. Frank had scored tickets to the Super Bowl in Los Angeles where the Washington Redskins were set to face off with the undefeated Miami Dolphins. He and his mistress, Cheryl Denise Brown, rushed through Las Vegas' McCarran International Airport on the morning of January 5, 1973, consumed by the fear of missing their short flight to LA. But Frank had bigger problems than being late. As he was racing through the airport, Las Vegas police were rushing to meet him at the terminal. And if they had their way, Frank would be watching the game from a cold jail cell instead of the raucous L.A. stands. I'm Howell Hargett. And I'm Kate Leonard. And this is Kingpins. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power change them and how it changed the community around them. This is our final episode on Frank Matthews, a narcotics trafficker who at the height of his powers in the late 1960s and early 1970s was responsible for drug distribution in 21 states and supplied drugs to every region of the U.S. This week, we'll take a look at Matthew's fall from atop the United States drug trade and the mysterious circumstances surrounding his fate. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merchandise. Head to ParCast.com slash merch for more information.
By the dawn of the 1970s, Frank Matthews sat firmly atop the hierarchy of the New York crime underworld. The scope of his expansive narcotics empire extended from the mean streets of Harlem all the way to the thick, tropical jungles of Venezuela. Frank had somehow amassed a criminal network that was hauling in hundreds of millions in profit each year, while simultaneously avoiding the probing attention of federal and local authorities. But all that changed in 1971, when Matthew's neighbor, Joe Kowalski, an NYPD detective who lived in the same Brooklyn apartment building, began surveilling him. Kowalski spent months tracking Matthew's strange comings and goings at all hours of the night, as well as his countless colorfully dressed visitors and appetite for luxurious cars. When he had felt like he had built a solid case, Kowalski turned his findings over to his superiors in the NYPD, but their reaction proved less than satisfying. Kowalski was disappointed to learn that the Matthews case was to be transferred to a special New York State task force created with the goal of putting major drug players like Frank Matthews away for good. Kowalski was off the case, but case 459, as it would become known, immediately became a priority for the New York State Joint Drug Task Force. Leading the task force's pursuit of Matthews was Group 12, an elite investigatory unit headed by Gerard Miller, who had accumulated 20 years of experience investigating organized crime networks in Miami and Chicago. Group 12's prerogative was simple. They had three months to collect evidence that would prove Frank Matthews was involved in a conspiracy to sell and distribute illegal narcotics. But pinning charges on Matthews would prove a unique challenge. Miller's unit simply didn't have enough time. These sorts of conspiracy cases could sometimes take years to yield significant evidence. But Miller and Group 12 didn't have years. They had 90 days. The task force's resources were limited. And if Group 12 couldn't find something indicating that Matthews was dirty, they would be forced to put their investigative skills to use on a more high-priority case. Miller and company wasted little time getting to work. Though the group was provided almost no funding for their investigation, often having to pay for their own gas and surveillance equipment, they were able to scrounge enough money together to rent an apartment across the street from Matthew's Brooklyn address. The group soon devised a nickname for Matthew's, The Bat, in reference to the fact that he only ever left his apartment at night. Matthews received constant nightly visits from men arriving in expensive cars and carrying brown paper bags of what the task force could only assume was either cash or drugs. Tracking Matthews' movements by car soon became a challenge. Members of the team would routinely follow Matthews as he pulled away from his building in any one of his many opulent rides. But these attempts at surveillance always ended the same way. Matthews was a reckless driver, freely slamming his accelerator and swerving in and out of traffic. 
the investigators usually lost him as his car closed in on 90 miles per hour. The Matthews investigation was already costing them so much in time and money that they hesitated to risk their lives and reputations in a high-speed car chase. Frank's reckless driving made investigators question whether he knew he was being watched. Matthews was known to have informants within the NYPD, so Group 12 was forced to operate with increased caution when it came to discussing their findings with fellow law enforcement officials. Whatever the case, until Group 12 could secure taps on Matthews' phones, they couldn't know for sure whether it was his keen intellect that was prompting his elusive behavior, or if it was just a symptom of his rumored cocaine habit. It took nearly four months before a New York judge finally authorized the team's request to tap Matthews' phones in June of 1972. Their original 90-day window had since been extended after the team revealed their circumstantial findings. But their listening efforts quickly proved just as frustrating as their previous attempts at surveillance. Any doubt that Frank was aware he was being watched quickly dissipated as Group 12 listened to hours upon hours of his phone conversations. He was always evasive commanding his contacts not to speak in specifics over the phone and using coded language to get his messages across without explicitly mentioning any of his business operations. And to make matters worse, Miller's team was also forced to endure hours of conversations about the ostentatious mansion that Frank was building for his wife and children in Staten Island's upper-class Tote Hill neighborhood. He was overjoyed with the house and seemed undisturbed by the prospect of becoming the only black family in a neighborhood that was home to a number of New York's preeminent mob families. Inside the confines of Group 12's Brooklyn apartment base, the pressure was palpable. They had been tailing Matthews for months and still had yet to produce any tangible evidence that would directly implicate him in any drug trafficking conspiracy. Miller and his men were confident that Matthews was dirty, but if they didn't produce something soon, they knew that not only would they be reassigned to another case, but Frank Matthews would be free to continue operating his drug empire without consequence. And that they could not allow. On a sweltering summer afternoon in 1972, Group 12 investigator Roger Garay and his partner John Dworsak trailed Matthews through the streets of Harlem just as they had hundreds of times before. Garai sat behind the wheel, attempting to stay far enough behind Matthews' Cadillac to avoid catching his attention. Dworsak sat hidden inside a large flower box that had been fitted atop the car, surveilling Matthews through a set of binoculars and hoping against all hope that his partner didn't feel the need to accelerate and send him flying. Garai watched as Matthews suddenly flew through traffic, slipping dangerously between cars as he barreled on toward a changing stoplight. Desperate not to lose Matthews again, Garai pressed down hard on the accelerator, lurching forward and deftly dodging traffic. But when he turned the corner, his heart skipped a beat. For all his reckless maneuvering, Matthews had turned directly into a traffic jam. 
Garai and Dworzak now found themselves right behind the man they had been chasing for months. Matthew suddenly stopped short, prompting Garai to slam on his brakes. Horrified, Garai watched as his partner launched from the flower box and tumbled out across the hood of his car. Garai sat in a daze as Matthews hopped out of his car and started on towards his driver's side window. This was it. Garai braced for how Miller and the rest of the team would react when he told them that their months-long investigation had been completely torpedoed by his partner almost literally falling into Matthew's lap. Garai's daze was interrupted by the sound of Matthew screaming from outside the car. He was irate that Garai had struck a pedestrian and commanded he help the man to his feet. Without hesitation, Garai fell right into his role. He stepped out of the car and apologized profusely to Dworzak, who still lay writhing in pain on the ground. When it was over, Frank pulled off and Group 12's investigation remained undiscovered. And it was fortunate that it did, because after months of frustration, Miller and his team had finally received some useful information. Their first significant tip came from a confidential informant who told the team that Matthews had enlisted the services of several airline stewardesses whom he paid $1,000 for each shipment of heroin they carried along in their journeys. But Group 12 was hardly finished. After months of tracking Matthews, the team happened upon an East 56th Street building that appeared to serve as a central hub for his organization. They watched as dozens of workers were bused to the building each morning and then as they were bused home hours later, looking haggard from a day's work. The team couldn't know for sure what was going on inside, but after all the time they had spent observing Matthews, they could certainly guess. The building was referred to within Matthews' organization as the OK Corral, and it served as the primary packaging plant for all of his East Coast heroin and cocaine distribution. Though the team didn't know it yet, they had just discovered the key to toppling the seemingly invulnerable Crime Syndicate. Up next, we'll look at how authorities finally apprehended the untouchable Frank Matthews. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. By the fall of 1972, Frank Matthews, his wife, and their three children had finally moved into their immaculate Staten Island mansion. The house was massive, a behemoth of stone and concrete that rivaled the many mansions that surrounded it in Tote Hill. It had cost Frank a fortune. He had poured hundreds of thousands of dollars into having the house erected from scratch. Always paying his contractors in cash, 
and never failing to overspend if an opportunity presented itself. But Frank knew that there was more to building a home than marble floors, gold-plated fixtures, and an in-ground swimming pool. That's why he hired an interior decorator, shelling out thousands just to ensure that the spacious rooms matched the ostentatiousness of its outer walls. Many wondered what had drawn Frank to the traditionally Italian Tote Hill neighborhood. His history of troubles with the mob was well established, so the decision to move in among so many of his Italian rivals seemed a dangerous gambit. But perhaps that was exactly why Frank chose Tote Hill in the first place. Even after rising through the ranks of the criminal underworld and establishing himself as a worthy challenger to the Italian mob's monopoly on the drug trade, Frank likely saw the opportunity to move in among them as too tempting to pass up. It wasn't enough to merely challenge the mob's criminal dominance. Frank wanted the satisfaction of becoming their neighbor leaving those who had long overlooked him with no choice but to acknowledge his ascent. Back in Brooklyn, Group 12 was ready to make their move on Matthews. On September 15, 1972, just days before their three-month investigation extension was set to expire, police raided the apartment of John Pop Darby, one of Matthews' top lieutenants. Police confiscated over $150,000 in cash, close to a million dollars in today's money, as well as drugs, weapons, and documents relating directly to Matthew's trafficking business. More importantly, though they didn't know it yet, the team had dealt a major blow to Matthew's Philadelphia connection, as Darby had served as his primary liaison in the area. And Matthew's bad day was only just beginning. At almost the same moment as their assault on Darby's apartment, police were raiding the OK Corral, the Brooklyn-based central hub of Matthew's narcotics trafficking network, busting down the doors and scaring the assembly line workers half to death as they shepherded them into police vans. Darby's arrest was a significant victory for Miller's team, but it paled in comparison to what the police uncovered here they seized $25 million worth of heroin. That's over $150 million in today's dollars. It was the largest heroin bust of all time, and to this day remains one of the more sizable drug busts in the history of the city. More importantly, it finally gave police an idea of just how big a player Matthews was in the heroin game. A grand jury was convened to decide if Matthews should be brought up on conspiracy charges. Though Frank believed that Darby and his other associates would remain loyal to him when interrogated, the raids made him consider just how safe he really was from prosecution. It turns out Frank's unwavering faith in his associates was ill-advised. The first of his criminal compatriots to jump ship was Babe Cameron, a Durham-based drug dealer who Matthews had known since their childhood days spent terrorizing the local chicken coops. Babe and Frank remained thick as thieves well after Frank's move to New York. When Frank became one of the country's most powerful dope traffickers, Babe parlayed their relationship into becoming one of Durham's most prominent drug dealers. But a recent falling out had placed a significant strain on the two men's relationship, 
both professionally and personally. When one of Babe's top customers died from a heroin overdose, Babe blamed Frank for giving the wrong instructions on how to cut the drugs. He was furious. Word of bad dope traveled fast around Durham, and a dead customer could prove lethal for his business. To make matters worse, Babe faced murder charges in North Carolina for the death of the customer. Matthews offered his sincerest apologies, but even months later, after the charges had been dropped, Babe refused to let Matthews' carelessness go. Fortunately for Group 12, Babe's eagerness to avoid a murder charge had prompted him to lay blame for the client's death firmly at Matthews' feet. His testimony proved integral in confirming what was becoming increasingly clear to Miller and his team of investigators. Matthews may have been based in New York, but his empire stretched all along the eastern seaboard and beyond. As summer turned to fall in 1972, Group 12 was rightfully celebrating the recent success in their investigation. After months of frustration, they had finally managed to draw blood in what had once felt like a futile battle. But unbeknownst to them, across the world, an arrest had been made that could serve as a mortal wound to Frank Matthews' criminal enterprise. Joseph Gabriel Albert Serini, a French courier for the Corsican mob, was arrested upon arriving at an airport in Caracas, Venezuela in early September 1972. Between his carry-on backpack and checked luggage, Serini was transporting 58 pounds of heroin. The Corsicans had long served as the United States' primary drug supplier, and Matthews had only recently begun to expand his relationship with the organization. Unfortunately for him, the shipment Serini was caught with was meant exclusively for his criminal network. In late September, Group 12 supervisor Gerard Miller and William Callahan, a special attorney with the Office of Drug Abuse and Enforcement, traveled to Venezuela to interrogate Serini. They were hopeful that they could use Serini's testimony in an eventual indictment against Matthews. When the investigators arrived at the remote, rural Venezuelan prison, they were led through a fenceless compound to a tiny hut where a shackled Serini awaited them. Serini may not have known Matthews personally, but he was a key courier in the organization that supplied Matthews' network. So any information he could provide would be integral in securing an indictment. After a few hours of interrogation, Serini asked for a water break. Miller and Callahan obliged, asking the guards to give him a drink and stepping outside to discuss how the interrogation had gone thus far. Once outside, a U.S. federal agent sitting in on the interrogation informed Miller and Callahan that the Venezuelan guards' idea of giving Serini a drink was to hold his head down in a bucket of water until he confessed to every crime that he was being asked about. With that, any chance that Serini's testimony could be used in a U.S. court evaporated. If Miller and Group 12 needed a witness who could testify against Matthews, they would have to wait for someone else in his circle to be arrested. Fortunately, they wouldn't have to wait long. 
In November of 1972, police arrested George Ramos, a Cuban drug supplier who had provided Frank Matthews with significant product since he first entered into the drug game nearly a decade earlier. Ramos was young, debonair, and above all else, clever. After being transported to New York to face trafficking charges, he immediately expressed a desire to make a deal with prosecutors. Investigators desperately wanted Frank Matthews, and for the right price, Ramos was more than willing to give him to them. On December 20th, federal prosecutors obtained a warrant for the arrest of Frank Matthews. The warrant charged him with possession and intent to sell 18.6 kilos of cocaine. That much cocaine today would carry a potential street value of more than $25 million. Named in the warrant was the prosecution's star witness, George Ramos, who testified that he and Matthews had personally flown to Miami on numerous occasions to procure significant amounts of cocaine. The authorities opted to wait until after the holidays to execute their warrant. But when the police attempted to arrest Matthews at his home on January 1st, 1973, he was nowhere to be found. Investigators quickly got wind that Matthews had absconded to Las Vegas to enjoy a week of heavy gambling and heavier partying with his mistress, Cheryl Denise Brown. There were a few things that Frank enjoyed more than Vegas, but among them was the chance to enjoy a truly special sporting event live and in person. He had planned to end his trip with a short plane ride to Los Angeles to see the Super Bowl matchup between the Washington Redskins and undefeated Miami Dolphins. Back in New York, however, Gerard Miller and his team were stressing. Though it seemed Matthews still had no idea about his imminent arrest, they had no intention of giving him even the smallest opportunity to slip through their grasp. On the morning of January 5, 1973, the Las Vegas Division of the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs received word from their New York counterparts, Frank Matthews was not to make his Super Bowl flight. Frank hardly noticed the team of Las Vegas police closing in on him from all sides as he waited to board his flight. His mind was elsewhere, thoughts already turning to the joys of watching football's biggest game in person. When the officers arrested him, Frank was almost too dazed to respond. He went without a fight, still confident that whatever he was being arrested for would be cleared up in a matter of hours. Gerard Miller and Bill Callahan were on the next plane out to Vegas. After months of frustration, they finally had their man. Now it was just a matter of getting Matthews extradited back to New York. Miller and Callahan arrived just in time to attend Matthews' bail bond hearing. Face to face with the man they had spent close to a year following, both men were taken aback by just how physically imposing Matthews was in person. If Matthews was nervous about finally facing prosecution, he certainly didn't show it. When Miller and Callahan finally got the opportunity to confront him, Matthews told them they had nothing on him and he'd be free in no time. Federal prosecutors made their case to have Frank's bail set high enough that he didn't attempt to flee. 
they had discovered that Frank had gambled away upwards of $100,000 over the course of his Vegas trip and cited this as evidence that he was a high roller whose bail should be set accordingly. The judge agreed, setting Matthew's bail at $5 million, the highest bail in United States history at the time. Matthews was stunned. For the first time since he was 17 years old, he now faced the possibility of serious jail time. But while the investigators and prosecutors were celebrating his inevitable conviction, Matthews was already concocting a plan that would save him from ever having to spend a day in prison. Coming up, we'll explore the circumstances surrounding Frank Matthews' mysterious disappearance. Now, back to the story. In the spring of 1973, things were looking dire for Frank Matthews. He had remained incarcerated since being extradited to New York. And as if losing his freedom wasn't bad enough, the IRS confronted him at one of his hearings to inform him that he owed more than $7 million in unpaid federal taxes. When an irate Frank demanded to know how he was supposed to pay such an exorbitant tax bill, the IRS agent responded, preferably in cash. For his defense, Frank had hired Gino Galena, a prominent criminal defense attorney whose work defending crime bosses had made him something of a counsel of choice for those facing federal trafficking charges. Frank needed all the help he could get. He faced 20 years to life for facilitating the sale and distribution of heroin and cocaine across all of the East Coast. The government's case seemed impenetrable. They had spent close to a year listening to his every phone call, tracking his every movement, and circling his criminal compatriots in hopes of enlisting as many turncoat witnesses as they could. As spring turned to summer, the question for prosecutors was no longer whether Frank Matthews was going to prison, but how long his sentence would be. Frank, too, saw the tides of his fortune turning. He had begun taking frequent visits from his criminal underlings in prison, remaining firmly in control of his criminal empire despite being behind bars. But these meetings served another purpose as well. Investigators soon learned that Frank had been squirreling away close to a million dollars per month for the past year, anticipating a day where he might be forced to flee his home. As the inevitability of his conviction became more clear, Frank set the wheels in motion for his escape. First, Frank needed to make bail. In Vegas, a federal judge had set his bail at an absurd $5 million. But much to the shock and dismay of federal prosecutors, Frank's attorney was able to convince a New York judge to set Matthew's bail at a far more attainable $350,000. Just like that, Frank Matthews was a free man. Prosecutors were horrified. Expecting that Frank would flee New York at the first chance he got, they had investigators tracking him from the moment he was released but their resources were thin, and some questioned the usefulness of keeping constant surveillance on a man who had already been convicted. Their concerns were somewhat abated by a surprising development within the New York drug trade. While Frank had been locked up, 
a vigilante group comprised of members of the Black Panthers, Rastafarians, and Black Muslim movements, had implemented a harsh policy to combat drug distribution within Black neighborhoods all over the city. Drug pushers were to be shot on sight. Whether it was ego or just a stubborn refusal to be pushed off the streets he had commanded for close to a decade, Frank Matthews decided not to leave town until these vigilantes were dealt with. Matthews wasn't about to let the fact that he was out on bail affect how he ran his business. He procured a shipment of automatic weapons and distributed them to his men across the city. Before long, a full-fledged war had broken out between Frank's organization and the vigilantes who were attempting to police the streets. The next few weeks were tense for both Frank and the prosecutors. The news that he had been spending his newfound freedom leading a violent conflict in the New York streets was a frustrating, if unsurprising, revelation. But Frank's appetite for violence was waning. He had spent the greater part of the last few months behind bars and viewed his new role as pseudo-military general as a less than ideal reprieve. More than that, Frank was becoming increasingly aware that, between the attention from the police and the war with the street vigilantes, the current New York City environment was too inhospitable for his business to thrive as it used to. Somewhere in those few weeks at war, he made a decision. He was done fighting. He was due back in court on July 2nd, but if all went according to plan, he would never need to set foot in a courtroom again. On the morning of July 2nd, 1973, investigators, attorneys, and onlookers sat in a Brooklyn federal courthouse eagerly awaiting the arrival of Frank Matthews. As minutes stretched into hours, the presiding judge grew increasingly impatient. He berated Matthews' attorney, Gino Galena, over his client's tardiness and demanded to know where he was. Galena had no definitive answer. He, too, had been unable to locate his client in the past few days. But the prosecutors knew that if Matthews wasn't in court, it meant their biggest fear had come to fruition. Frank Matthews had vanished, never to be seen or heard from again. The circumstances of Matthews' final day in New York soon became the stuff of legend. Some claim that he organized a send-off with all his closest friends and advisors, issuing his final farewells before heading off in his prized Silver Thunderbird. Others claim that Matthews had walked through the streets of Harlem, giving away bushels of money to any and all takers before he made his final exit from the city. Years later, some within the criminal underworld would say that Matthews had fled New York for his hometown of Durham with multiple 55-gallon oil drums stuffed with cash. Investigators believed that Frank had left town with at least $20 million, not even counting the money he could have stashed at any one of his remote drug bases around the country. Just a month after Frank's July disappearance, Michael Bramble, an NYPD detective, claimed to have spotted him seated behind the wheel of a white Cadillac parked along a Manhattan curb. Bramble sprinted to his car, 
He was without his police radio, so his only chance at catching Matthews was to arrest him here and now. But by the time he reached his car, Matthews had already taken off. Bramble sped after him, zigzagging through traffic, trying to stay on the Cadillac's tail. As soon as he had an opportunity, he lurched in front of the white Cadillac, cutting Matthews off. But instead of slamming on the brakes, the man behind the wheel of the Cadillac slammed on the accelerator, barreling forward into Bramble's car. The white Cadillac rammed Bramble off the road. As he lost control, he could only watch helplessly as the Cadillac disappeared into a shifting sea of passing cars. Bramble's chase prompted the authorities to change their approach to Matthew's disappearance. They had thus far been operating under the assumption that Matthews had fled New York with his mistress, Cheryl Denise Brown, who had also disappeared from the public around the same time. But Bramble's sighting meant that it was possible Matthews had never even left New York. Police searched his many known stash houses across the city, ultimately finding no sign of Matthews or his paramour. Over the course of the next year, authorities sought to pressure Matthews' wife, Barbara Hilton, into giving up whatever she knew on her husband's location. Despite the fact that Matthews had abandoned her and their three children, Hilton remained adamant that she knew nothing of his whereabouts. Hilton remained obstinate even after the IRS seized the family's Tote Hill mansion as payment for Frank's $7 million in outstanding taxes. She and her three children were forced to move into a small Brooklyn apartment that had previously served as one of Frank's stash houses. Meanwhile, the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs had taken a drastic step of their own. They issued a $20,000 reward for any information leading to Matthew's apprehension. At the time, it was the largest reward since the bounty for the infamous Depression-era bank robber, John Dillinger. As the search continued on into 1974, the Bureau's investigation led them to a Syracuse-area boarding house. Police sealed off the surrounding area, fully convinced that the manhunt for Frank Matthews was about to reach its end. But when they finally raided the house, police were disappointed to discover that the Frank Matthews they had tracked to Syracuse was actually an 80-year-old man. Today, more than 40 years later, Frank Matthews still remains a fugitive. For years, questions have abounded as to whether the crime lord is still alive, and sightings have been reported in more than 50 countries and dozens of U.S. cities. Some claim that Frank was killed for his failure to keep his Corsican drug connections out of the spotlight of law enforcement. Those who believe this theory cite the fact that he apparently never reached out to his family in the decades since his disappearance. In the mid-1990s, Agents in the Federal Marshals Service looked into the financial records of many of Frank's immediate family and close friends. They found no inconsistencies that would indicate Matthews had been supporting his family financially in the intervening years. Still, others believe the most obvious answer is likely the right one. They believe that Frank Matthews left New York in an ultimate act of selfishness with millions of cash in his pockets and his mistress in tow. But 
in Durham, North Carolina, those who knew Frank Matthews remain hesitant to disclose any details of his life. And it's not for fear of ghosts. The people there believe that Frank Matthews still stands firmly among the living, and they have no intention of getting on his bad side. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. You can find more episodes of Kingpins, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify and anywhere you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. For more information on Frank Matthews, amongst the many sources we used, we found Black Caesar, The Rise and Disappearance of Frank Matthews by Ron Chepsik, extremely helpful to our research. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Russell Nash. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskind. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Kingpins was written by Daniel Ocho and stars Kate Leonard and Howell Hargett.